Lucifrux Poetry, Episode 1, Sword Blades and Poppy Seed by Amy Lowell. A drifting April twilight sky, a wind which blew the puddles dry and slapped the river into waves that ran and hid among the staves of an old wharf. A watery light touched bleak the granite bridge, and white without the slightest tinge of gold, the city shivered in the cold. All day my thoughts had lain as dead, unborn and bursting in my head. From time to time I wrote a word, which lines and circles overscored. My table seemed a graveyard, full of coffins waiting burial. I seized these vile abortions, tore them into jagged bits, and swore to be the dupe of hope no more. Into the evening straight I went, starved of the day's accomplishment. Unnoticing, I wondered where the city gave a space for air, and on the bridge's parapet, I leant while pallidly there set a dim, discouraged, worn-out sun. Behind me, where the tramways run, blossomed bright lights. I turned to leave when someone plucked me by the sleeve. Your pardon, sir, but I should be most grateful could you lend to me a car fare. I've lost my purse. The voice was clear, concise, and terse. I turned and met the quiet gaze of strange eyes flashing through the haze. The man was old and slightly bent. Under his cloak, some instrument disarranged its stately line. He rested on his cane, a fine and nervous hand. An almondine, smoldered with dull red flames, sanguine, it burned in twisted gold upon his finger. Like some Spanish dawn, conferring favors even when asking for an alms, he bowed again and waited. But my pockets proved empty. In vain I poked and shoved. No hidden penny lurking there greeted my search. Sir, I declare, I have no money. Pray forgive, but let me take you where you live. And so we plodded through the mire where street lamps cast a wavering fire. I took no note of where we went. His talk became the element wherein my being swam content. It flashed like rapiers in the night, lit by uncertain candlelight, when on some moon-forsaken sward a quarrel dies upon a sword. It hacked and carved like a cutlass blade, and the noise in the air the broad words made was the cry of the wind at a window pane on an autumn night of sobbing rain. Then it would run like a steady stream under pinnacled bridges where minarets gleam or lap the air like lapping tide, where a marble staircase lifts its wide, greed-spotted steps to a garden gate, and a waning moon is sinking straight down to a black and ominous sea, while a nightingale sings in a lemon tree. I walked as though some opiate had stung and dulled my brain, a state acute and slumberous. It grew late. We stopped. A house stood silent, dark, the old man scratched a match. The spark lit up the keyhole of a door. We entered straight upon a floor, white with finest powdered sand, carefully sifted. One might stand muddy and dripping, and yet no trace would stain the boards of this kitchen place. From the chimney, red eyes sparked the gloom, and a cricket's chirp filled all the room. My host threw pine cones on the fire, and crimson and scarlet glowed the pyre wrapped in the golden flame's desire. The chamber opened like an eye, 
as a half-melted cloud in a summer sky, the soul of the house stood guest and shy. It peered at the stranger warily. A little shop with its various ware, spread on shelves with nicest care. Pitchers and jars and jugs and pots, pipkins and mugs and many lots of lacquered canisters, black and gold, like those in which Chinese tea is sold. Chests and puncheons, kegs and flasks, goblets, chalices, firkins and casks. In a corner, three ancient amphorae leaned against the wall like ships careened. There was dusky blue of Wedgwood ware, the carved white figures fluttering there like leaves adrift upon the air. Classic in touch, but emasculate, the Greek soul grown effeminate. The factory of Sevres had lent elegant boxes with ornament culled from gardens where fountains splashed and golden carp in the shadows flashed, nuzzling for crumbs under lily pads, which ladies threw as the last of fads. Eggshell trays where gay bow knelt, hand on heart and daintily spelt, their love in flowers, brittle and bright, artificial and fragile, which told aright the vows of an 18th century knight. The cruder tones of old Dutch jugs glared from one shelf where Toby mugs endlessly drank the foaming ale, its froth grown dusty, awaiting sale. The glancing light of the burning wood played over a group of jars which stood on a distant shelf. It seemed the sky had lent the half-tones of his blazonry to paint these porcelains with unknown hues, of reds dyed purple and greens turned blues, of lusters with so evanescent a sheen their colors are felt but never seen. Strange winged dragons writhe about these vases, poisoned venoms spout, impregnate with old Chinese charms, sealed urns containing mortal harms. They fill the mind with thoughts impure, pestilent drippings from the yore of vicious thinkings. Ah, I see, I said, you deal in pottery. The old man turned and looked at me, shook his head gently. No, said he. Then from under his cloak he took the thing which I had wondered to see him bring, guarded so carefully from sight. As he laid it down it flashed in the light, a Toledo blade with basket hilt, damascened arabesques of gilt, or rather gold, and tempered so it could cut a floating thread at a blow. The old man smiled. It has no sheath. It was a little careless to have it beneath my cloak for a jostle to my arm would have resulted in serious harm. But it was so fine, I could not wait, so I brought it with me, despite its state. An amateur of arms, I thought, bringing home a prize which he has brought. You care for this sort of thing, dear sir? Not in the way which you infer. I need them in business, that is all. And he pointed his finger at the wall. Then I saw what I had not noticed before. The walls were hung with at least five score of swords and daggers of every size, which nations of militant men could devise. Poisoned spears from tropic seas that natives under banana trees smear with the juice of some deadly snake. Blood-dipped arrows which savages make and tip with feathers orange and green, a quivering death in harlequin sheen. High up, a fan of glancing steel was formed of claymores in a wheel. 
jeweled swords worn at king's levies were suspended next midshipmen's dirks, and these elbowed stilettos come from Spain, chased with some splendid Hidalgo's name. There were samurai swords from old Japan and scimitars from Hindustan, while the blade of a Turkish yadagan made a waving streak of vitreous white upon the wall in the firelight. Foils with buttons, broken or lost, lay heaped on a chair, among them tossed the boarding pike of a privateer. Against the chimney leaned a queer two-handed weapon, with edges dull as though from hacking on a skull. The rusted blood corroded it still. My host took up a paper spill from a heap which lay in an earthen bowl and lighted it at a burning coal. At either end of the table, tall wax candles were placed, each in a small and slim and burnished candlestick of pewter. The old man lit each wick, and the room leapt more obviously upon my mind, and I could see what the flickering fire had hid from me. Above the chimney's yawning throat, shoulder-high like the dark wainscot, was a mantel-shelf of polished oak, blackened with pungent smoke of fire-lit nights. A Cromwell clock of tarnished brass stood like a rock in the midst of a heaving, turbulent sea of every sort of cutlery. There lay knives sharpened to any use, the keenest lancet and the obtuse and blunted pruning billhook, blades of razors, scalpels and shears, cascades of penknives with handles of mother of pearl and scythes and sickles and scissors, a whirl of points and edges, and underneath shot the gleam of a saw with bristling teeth. My head grew dizzy. I seemed to hear a battle cry from somewhere near. The clash of arms and the squeal of balls and the echoless thud when a dead man falls. A smoky cloud had veiled the room, shot through with lurid glares, the gloom pounded with shouts and dying groans, with the drip of blood on cold hard stones. Sabres and lances in streaks of light gleamed through the smoke, and at my right, a crease like a licking serpent's tongue glittered an instant when it stung. Streams and points and lines of fire, the livid steel which man's desire had forged and welded, burnt white and cold. Every blade which man could mold, which could cut or slash, or cleave or rip, or pierce, or thrust, or carve, or strip, or gash, or chop, or puncture, or tear, or slice, or hack, they all were there. Nerveless and shaking, round and round, I stared at the walls and at the ground, till the room spun like a whipping top, and a stern voice in my ear said, Stop! I sell no tools for murderers here. Of what are you thinking? Please clear your mind of such imaginings. Sit down. I will tell you of these things. He pushed me into a great chair of russet leather, poked a flare of tumbling flame with the old long sword up the chimney, but said no word. Slowly he walked to a distant shelf and brought back a crock of finest delf. He rested a moment, a blue-veined hand upon the cover, then cut a band of paper pasted neatly round, opened and poured. A sliding sound came from beneath his old white hands, and I saw a little heap of sands, black and smooth, 
What could they be? Pepper, I thought. He looked at me. What you see is poppy seed, lethean dreams for those in need. He took up the grains with a gentle hand and sifted them slowly like hourglass sand. On his old white finger, the almondine shot out its rays, incarnadine. Visions for those too tired to sleep. These seeds cast a film over eyes which weep. No single soul in the world could dwell without these poppy seeds I sell. For a moment he played with the shining stuff, passing it through his fingers. Enough at last, he poured it into the china jar of pollen blue, which he carefully carried to its place. Then with a smile on his aged face, he drew up a chair to the open space, twixt table and chimney. Without preface, young man, I will say that what you see is not the puzzle you take it to be. But surely, sir, there is something strange. In a shop with goods so wide a range, each from the other as swords and seeds. Your neighbors must have greatly deferring needs. My neighbors, he said, and he stroked his chin, live everywhere from here to Pekin. But you are wrong. My sort of goods is but one thing in all its moods. He took a chagrin letter case from his pocket and with charming grace offered me a printed card. I read the legend. Ephraim Bard, dealer in words. And that was all. I stared at the letters, whimsical, Indeed, or was it merely a jest? He answered my unasked request. All books are either dreams or swords. You can cut or you can drug with words. My firm is a very ancient house. The entries on my books would rouse your wonder, perhaps incredulity. I inherited from an ancestry stretching remotely back and far. This business and my clients are as were those of my grandfather's days writers of books and poems and plays. My swords are tempered for every speech, for fencing wit or to carve a breach through old abuses the world condones. In another room are my grindstones and hones for wetting razors and putting a point on daggers. Sometimes I even anoint the blades with a subtle poison so a twofold result may follow the blow. These are purchased by men who feel the need of stabbing society's heel which egotism has brought them to think is set on their necks. I have foils to pink an adversary to quaint reply, and I have customers who buy scalpels which witch to dissect the brains and hearts of men. Ultramundanes even demand some finer kinds to open their souls and minds, but the other half of my business deals with visions and fancies. Under seals sorted and placed in vessels here, I keep the seeds of an atmosphere, each jar contains a different kind of poppy seed. From farthest end come the purple flowers, opium-filled, from which the weirdest myths are distilled. My orient porcelains contain them all. Those low-stocked pitchers against the wall hold a lighter kind of bright conceit. And those old sax vases out of the heat on that lowest shelf beside the door have a sort of ideal couleur d'or. Every castle of the air sleeps in the fine black grains, and there are seeds for every romance or light whiff of a dream for a summer night. I supply to every want and taste. Twas slowly said in no great haste. He seemed to push his wares, but I, dumbfounded, listened. By and by, a log on the fire broke in two. He looked up quickly. Sir, and you? I groped for something I should say. Amazement held me numb. 
Today you sweated at a fruitless task. He spoke for me. What do you ask? How can I serve you? My kind host. My penniless state was not a boast. I have no money with me. He smiled. Not for that money I beguiled you here. You paid me in advance. Again I felt as though a trance had dimmed my faculties. Again he spoke, and this time to explain. The money I demand is life. Your nervous force, your joy, your strife. What infamous proposal now was made me with so calm a brow? Bursting through my lethargy, indignantly I hurled the cry. Is this a nightmare, or am I drunk with some infernal wine? I am no Faust, and what is mine is what I call my soul. Old man, devil or ghost, your hellish plan revolts me. Let me go. My child. And the old tones were very mild. I have no wish to barter souls. My traffic does not ask such tolls. I am no devil. Is there one? Surely the age of fear is gone. We live within a daylight world, lit by sun, where winds unfurled sweep clouds to scatter pattering rain and then blow back the sun again. I sell my fancies or my swords to those who care far more for words, ideas of which they are the sign than any other life design. Who buy of me must simply pay their whole existence quite away their strength, their manhood, and their prime, their hours from morning till the time when evening comes on tiptoe feet and losing life think it complete, must miss what other men count being to gain the gift of deeper seeing, must spurn all ease, all hindering love, all which could hold or bind must prove the farthest boundaries of thought and shun no end which these have brought, then die in satisfaction knowing that what was sown was worth the sowing. I claim for all the goods I sell that they will serve their purpose well, and though you perish, they will live full measure for your pay I give. Today you work, you thought in vain. What since has happened is the train your toiling brought. I spoke to you for my share of the bargain due. My life, and is that all you crave in pay? What even childhood gave? I have been dedicated from youth, before my God, I speak the truth. Fatigue, excitement of the past, few hours broke me down at last. All day I had forgot to eat. My nerves betrayed me, lacking meat. I bowed my head and felt the storm, plow shattering through my prostrate form. The tearless sobs tore at my heart. My host withdrew himself apart, busied among his crockery. He paid no further heed to me. Exhausted, spent, I huddled there, within the arms of an old carved chair. A long half-hour dragged away, and then I heard a kind voice say, The day will soon be dawning when you must begin to work again. Here are the things which you require. By the fading light of the dying fire, and by the guttering candle's flare, I saw the old man standing there. He handed me a packet with crimson tape and sealed, Inside are seeds of many differing flowers to occupy your utmost powers of storied vision. And these swords are the finest which my shop affords. Go home and use them. Do not spare yourself. Let that be all your care. Whatever you have means to buy, be very sure I can supply. He slowly walked to the window, flung it open and the grey air rung, the sound of distant matin bells. I took my parcels, then, as tells an ancient mumbling monk his beads, I tried to thank for his courteous deeds. My strange old friend. Nay, do not talk. 
he urged me. You have a long walk before you. Goodbye and good day. And gently sped upon my way. I stumbled out in the morning hush, as down the empty street a flush ran level from the rising sun. Another day was just begun. What made you choose this poem, Sword Blades and Poppy Seed, uh, as our first recording for the podcast? Yeah, so I, I picked it I picked it because it's a poem about writing. It's a poem about poems. And if you read the full book of poems that it's taken from, the book is called Sword Blades and Poppy Seed. So she sets up the this analogy in the beginning where she says that writing poems can can be these two types you can either write sword blades or poppy seeds and then she divides the rest of the book up into there's a section of sword blade poems and there's a section of poppy seed poems i can't quite remember whether she sort of delivers on the promise of making them sword blades and poppy seeds like i take i take the metaphor to be that the sword blades are poems that are or writing that's trying to make some sort of point whereas the poppy seeds are just purely for the pleasure of the imagery or the sound or whatever of them so yeah i thought it was a good starting poem so do you think this poem is more a sword blade or a poppy seed well i think it's both right it's both because it it i'd say all the start of it and the finish of it is pure poppy seeds it's this fantasy of trying to write something you screw up you like go for a walk, you meet a weird stranger, he takes you back to this weird place. And the way it ends is also kind of poppy seedy. It's all like it could be a dream or something, like it could be happening in a dream. But I think in the middle, she embeds the sword blade of trying to make this argument about about writing, that writing can have this dual character. It can be a sword blade or a poppy seed. So I'd say it's like a sword blade inside a poppy seed. Nice, I like that. When it comes to to poetry i think one of the first things i always wonder actually it's not the first thing i i wonder i get through the poem first and then i start asking um what is actually happening in the poem um and not all poems are an actual narrative but in this case would you be able to explain what you think is happening like is it a dream is it that Oh my god, you've ruined everything. <laughs> I don't even know what fell, and I'm too afraid to look. <laughs> of the well, this is, this is embarrassing. I mean, this is terrible. <laughs> I'll try and press on. but <laughs> It's like the worst moment. Anyway. Um... Well, do you want to, I mean, do you want to take that one? Because you've, you've had to read this. I've made, I forced you to read this poem like, what, five, six times now? So how do you how do you feel about the journey? I'm trying not to giggle into the mic here with the five six times. So, you know what I thought about when I was getting through it all those times is I I kept imagining the old man as like a Faustian person, um, and there's even a line where the speaker says I'm no Faust. So a part of me kept kept wondering if he is he a metaphor for like a deal with the devil, um, and then is he you know, this, this idea of this person peddling their wares. So is the wares like the ideas? Is it the, is, is it like crusty old history? Because he has like things from, you know, far and wide and old and 
it's like this, you know, sabers and the and different kinds of swords from different parts of of the world. So it's like, is that a metaphor for ideas new and old? Is it? I think that's a sort of. I sort of think that's a failing of the poem, or at the very least, it's a sort of misdirection that the poem does, because the poem's it's taking place at night. You meet this stranger who like comes and like basically like tries and pan like panhandles off you, <laughs> like he's <laughs> trying to get a car fare off of you, which you don't have, uh, presumably because you're like a broke writer or something. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, you go back to his like slightly creepy house, and he's got all these swords, but. He's not supposed to be creepy, and he's not supposed to be Faustian, mm-hmm. right? I yeah, I could I could see that as like the you know the mind of the writer that you're trying to you're trying to like squeeze meaning out of something, and it can get too actually too romantic in some ways. I think so. I think it's mm-hmm. too skilled. She's too good at making the. She's too good at the imagery of the this kind of dark night and this spooky mm-hmm. house that it it makes you think something kind of creepy is going to happen. But ultimately, all that happens is you sleep at the guy's house and then he wakes you up in the morning, yeah. right? And he gives you like a sword and mm-hmm. he gives you a sword and some drugs in the morning, which is you know if you've gone home with a stranger and fallen asleep in his house, that's not a bad ending. <laughs> yep, yeah, it's so true. Yeah, not not the worst ending in the world. Like you didn't actually sell your soul. Yeah, I mean, you went to a secondary location with a stranger who you who you saw was carrying a sword, and he basically just sort of gave you breakfast in the morning and and set you on your way. I mean, there's also the whole bit where he talks about where they talk about God for a little bit, right? Like, so he says, he says, um, "I demand your life or whatever, your life force," mm-hmm. and then the narrator is kind of creeped out by that, but then he all of that gets tempered by the poem like there's all the bit of like you know uh i am no devil is there one it, it it's a completely it ends up being a completely secular poem it mm. doesn't invoke i mean i guess it invokes creepy image and mm-hmm. creepy imagery but it doesn't ever actually evoke anything supernatural apart from i guess the metaphor itself of writing being sword blades and stuff like mm-hmm. it's very i mean that's why it's, i think it's a really fun poem because it doesn't everywhere you think it's taking you at the start Mm -hmm. it kind of takes you in a completely different way in a different way i i like that um i like your interpretation because when i was reading it i got i kept thinking of stephen king's uh, needful things that that novel of his where it's a very wonderfully done novel and and movie where it's an old man that owns an antique shop so it i was thinking of that theme of um yeah like like i said previously like the faustian bargain but also like the actual physical things and what do they represent something do they not in this case probably not in needful things it it became like a major theme in the novel it's like how much do you want that that thing he has um that that specific item so it would be like a certain retro baseball card or something very specific but this was almost like the thing it it almost felt like a list of things, which like oftentimes poems, if they list things, it's for a reason. So it, if, you know, I like your interpretation that it, it pretends it's leading you somewhere with all these objects, but in the end, it, it may not be. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I took, I took those lists to basically be her wanting to, wanting to create pretty lists of words because mm-hmm. 
on the one hand they are lists but they they are just lists but um they're re- they're really lovely just to, just the sounds even of of saying them i mean it's it's so fun to say the the particular the particular items in the order she lists them uh i'm desperately sort of like trying to find like one of these like list sections knives sharpened to any use the keenest lancet and the obtuse and blunted pruning hook of razors scalpels shears cascades of pen knives think of a cascade of I pen like, knives I, I liked that image yeah i'm imagining like a bin full of them or a drawer full of them or or something where they're all contained and then they spill easily yeah yeah and uh, you know and then and she's doing other stuff with it like the next line is and scythes and sickles and scissors so you know alliteration folks you know it's, <laughs> yeah. it's poetry, yeah. It's poetry <laughs> yeah. and that should be like the that that's a great phrase for you know what we're doing here it's in the end it's poetry yeah like i think i i think it's uh, yeah yeah ultimately i think this is a poem that like on it kind of gives you something on the first read through and there's extra stuff that you can kind of dive into on the second or third read through and yeah like i said i mean how many times have we recorded like how many times have you read this poem all the way through now i'd say i think it's around the the 10 ish mark but it's not like 20 times so yeah. i think we're hitting like 10 which is it's a lot for a long poem um but it's it's not the worst amount i think and i'm still i'm not sick of it yet right i mean i still i'm still i still enjoy it i still enjoy hearing it even though yeah we've spent sort of more time with it than i would have ideally i would have liked um same yeah it's definitely been it's been a bit it's been a big chunk to to chew off especially with the first poem but there's one i remember like my biggest complaint was the what i felt were run-on sentences for a reason like it's good they're there but as the reader it's like and then this and that and this and that and this and and that um was it's more fun to play with it now that i can anticipate where it is in the lines so there is a lot to be said about learning the poem and then you can anticipate those exciting really like truly exciting and like juicy um juicy lists yeah, I mean, I had a bit in my, there was a bit of my bit, um, the bit that goes, uh, my firm is a very ancient house. The entries on my books would rouse your wonders, perhaps incredulity. I, in- I inherited from an ancestry stretching remotely back and far. This business and my clients are as though, as were those of my grandfather's days. Th- th- that whole section, it goes on and on. And I'm, I'm still not 100% sure like where to put line breaks. I mean, I, and I do sort of wonder to what extent this poem was even made to be read out loud or whether it was only ever supposed to be read in your head because it is once you try and say it out loud it it is it is difficult <laughs> like and if if i've if i've made any mistakes or people think that i put things like put emphasis in the wrong place all i would say is just try and read it out yourself mm, <laughs> it's very yes, it's people, very difficult <laughs> considering how many times i did it so how do you feel about this poem what bits struck you the most or or which bits did you enjoy reading out the most i actually enjoyed the the lists of stuff like goblets chalices firkins and casks i think that the words were chosen in a way that they have a nice like alliteration like you say or assonance where it doesn't have to be an exact rhyme but there's like a continuation in the vowel sound and they're not yeah they're definitely they're not just lists like they're following 
like meter and everything like that yeah they're all they're mm -hmm. again like if you think if you think they're just lists try and write your own list you and sort point. of yeah. have it be as good as the lists that she wrote in the poem because it, it won't be yeah. teacups the spoons you know like they <laughs> list of like kitchen items or something and it's not yeah it's not the same um so i like yeah i, I like the frivolity of of the stuff this guy um had but that like is that sound sound of the words um, but also the images it um, can can capture the image of something without explaining it, you know. So the the swords looked like this, you know. Like the minute she starts naming like scimitars and like all those kinds of um, foreign looking swords from different nations, I I totally could imagine them in my head, like stiletto knives versus. Um, sabers and, and all of that I enjoyed the imagery without this the need for a prose narrative around it so really um, it, it the images should pop into your head instead of this is how the setup should look yeah the strong the strong imagery and I found myself not super attached um, to what was happening with the the old man and the speaker I, I wasn't like so is it I wasn't really attached uh, to finding out if it was if it had any, any deeper meaning yeah I think that definitely gets lost on a first read through it's so hard just to figure out what's going on and it the lists do get in the way of you figuring out the narrative because it's yeah it stops every now and again to talk about amphorae or like stuff made out of like chagrin and like just <laughs> all these like yeah the chagrin, I remember the chagrin purse. <laughs> well, like all these weird things. Uh, but there is a little story there. I mean, I do like that there's a little story. It's got everything. It's got like a little story. It's got it's got sort of cool imagery. It rhymes, you know. I mean, what more could you want? Out of it runs for it's like it runs for like three, four pages. Three, four pages. What more could you want out of a poem? Oh, I think that's a, I think that's a good way to to end it. What more could you want out of a poem? Yeah, we're at 20 minutes. I mean, surely, surely no one could want more of this, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> you have been listening to Usufruct Poetry. U-S-U-F-R-U-C-T. Poetry. 